Welcome to the ninth and final episode of the Afro Historyscapes podcast series, where we give you a different perspective on African history. We tell the story of African history through objects at the Horniman Museum and Gardens in South London. These objects bring to life fascinating stories from the past. Together with the objects and histories, we open a different window into African worlds. We show how these objects continue to be used on the continent and in the diaspora in various ways. The narratives we share are based on research carried out by the Horniman's curators and community researchers. Each month, we focus on a different theme. But we think another way to explore the history of Africa is through the idiom of movement. Africa is a dynamic continent that has always been on the move. If you're interested in African history, material culture, and museum collections, then this is the podcast for you. We're your hosts, JC Niala and Tom Fearon. And these objects show us how the movement of people, objects and ideas from the African continent has shaped its rich history and made an impact on the rest of the world. This week, we continue with our final theme, which is about technology. Last week, we heard from Chinello and Jacka, PhD who is a community action researcher on technologies used in crafting practices. And she also talked about the mechanics of carrying out work on African and Caribbean collections held in European museums, thinking about how to manage absence and issues of representation in the collections. Yes, she lifted the lid on what it's been like to participate in the community action research project, which has been taking place at the Horniman from 2020 to 2021. It's a project that provided training and support to community members so they could carry out research of their interests on the collections. And this week, we're joined by another community action researcher who took part in the project in 2020. Yvette Waweru carried out research on headrests in the collections, which resulted in the making of an incredible Afrofuturistic short film that you can find on the podcast page. She joins us today from Nairobi, Kenya, where she's currently based. Yvette, we're delighted that you can join us. Welcome. Hello, great to be here. We'd love to hear more about what drew you to working with headrests in the collections. As someone born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya, I had never seen nor heard about these objects. They never came up during my foundational years at school, even in art and design classes that I loved and enjoyed for so long. Through my architecture days at university in the US abroad, I spent hours rummaging through books and websites that gave little information on historical design approaches and elements to African design. I didn't have enough design precedents to explore my interests, and I defaulted to looking at Western culture or nature for inspiration. Coming across these objects gave me access to pre-colonial African design, which was hard to find online. It was exciting to explore these strange pillows and understand their function and aesthetics, and more importantly, the people behind them. That's a really good point about how hard it can be to find information about pre-colonial African design, especially online. What sort of information were you able to find out about the headrests you were working with and where did you find it? The Honeyman Museum website provided a good amount of information about the headrests in their collection. 
I checked out a total of 23 made by communities, primarily from Southern and Eastern Africa. There were three from ancient Egypt, an example of which is a session number 21.81. In Eastern Africa, the headers show up often with pastoralist communities, such as Dinka peoples of South Sudan, as seen at a session number 2019.63, Turkana peoples at a session number 2010.7, and Samburu peoples of Kenya at a session number 1972.119. There is a Karamajong headdress from Uganda at a session number 2003.599, and a Somali headdress at a session number 2013.156. Southern African headdress included a Zulu one from South Africa at a session number 2676 and a Zimbabwean Shona headdress at a session number 20.13. The Zulu and Shona headdress are from the great kingdoms of Zululand and Zimbabwe. From Honeyman's website, I learned that the headdress functioned as a lot more than just pillows. They had multifunctional, ritualistic, and even sacred purposes depending on the culture. In the Shona community, for example, headdress served to protect men's hair cells. And in Zulu traditions, they functioned as part of a woman's dowry. In many cultures across the African continent, the groom and his family are responsible for providing the bride's family with gifts, money, amongst other things as a condition for the marriage to be able to take place. In both Shona and Zulu communities, headdress had sacred meaning to the owners and were in fact seen as a seat for the spirit of the owners once they passed with the headdress being buried with the deceased. Through further research, I learned that this practice was also performed in ancient Egypt. Pastoralist communities of Eastern Africa also had several uses of headdress, given that they could only travel with a limited number of objects. They used them as pillows, stools, protection from creepy crawlers, as containers, and even hairstyle protectors. To get more specific information on the headdress and their users, I had to dig through blogs and cultural websites that I came across. I also found plenty of information from other museum collections, from private collection holders like randafricanart.com and social media pages. Analyzing the objects themselves also brought in some information. I also checked out historical videos from places like the National Archives and British Path to find historical photographs and videos to contextualize the objects. One example is the intricate hairstyles worn by Zulu ladies from a 1931 film in the British Path Archives. It was very interesting to see the hairstyles that needed to be maintained and protected from damage using the headdress. I could have done with one of those headdresses when I was a teenager and I used to wear all sorts of different hairstyles. They would have been really useful. And I noticed that you worked a lot with pastoral communities' headrests. What have you learned about their lifestyles from working with their material culture? The pastoralist communities clearly needed as much multifunctionality with these objects as possible, as they spend a lot of time on the move. This multifunctionality is expressed in the design. The headrests are light and have strap handles for carrying them around. For example, the Turkana Epicholon found at a session number 2010.7 and the Dinka Sok found at a session number 2019.63. I found it interesting that the three-legged design of the Samburu headdress is because it also serves as a stool. I have been exposed to these three-legged stools but never saw them used in other ways. The Somali Barking found at a session number 2013.156 which is also attributed to the Boni community, 
is a great example of art meeting function and ritual in headdress used by pastoralist communities. Uh, in order to keep the herder vigilant, the headdress have a small base making them unstable so that the person resting can't fully fall asleep without falling over. It is also made from light but sturdy wood. From the small circular base, two flattened and curved supports rise to meet another flattened and curved base where the head or neck rests. The inscriptions on the headdress are said to be a form of shorthand for a prayer for protection of the sleeper reflecting the Islamic influence in the region. These headdresses are also used on the wedding nights of couples where the groom gives his bride a sum of money under her headdress to purchase jewelry that would indicate her new status. All these multiple uses come together to serve more than just one function, which drew me further to the headdress from these communities. I really love the way that you have drawn out the complexity of these objects. To me, they're a mirror of many objects from the African continent. They may seem like they do one thing, but it actually turns out that they do many different things. It also strikes me that these communities you describe were living really well. You don't take time to make a functional object look beautiful if you're struggling. But this question of art and functionality leads me to another question. Nowadays, there are many questions about how headdress should be categorized. They're everyday objects, but we've discussed they're also beautiful and are such seen as works of art. How do you see them? I see them as all these things and don't believe they should be placed in a single category, given that the different cultures had different and multiple uses of them. In some ways, they are personal and sacred objects that are not for public show or consumption, as most artwork is today. If I imagine connecting with my great-grandma through this object, I certainly would keep it stored safely and never let anyone use it. In other ways, they are beautiful sculptures that are an expression of personal style for travel, like a heart would be. Given the diversity of use, I think it's okay to not categorize them. That's a really good point, Yvette. And divine categorization is also something that you work with in your own practice. In your output, an amazing video that can be seen on the podcast page you projected the headrests into the future. Where did you draw your inspiration? My inspiration actually came from watching a lot of sci-fi short films on the YouTube page that during lockdown in 2020. There were so many ideas from so many filmmakers who triggered my mind into imagining alternate realities. This led to projecting the past into the future by thinking about these historic headrests, their meaning and function being adapted to a time with much greater technological capability. In fact, some of these ideas could likely be achieved now with the right research and development on making headdress suitable for sleep tracking or virtual reality, for example. As I watched the sci-fi films, I found that the intent with a lot of the technological ideas was to make life easier for humans. I then thought about the traditional ideas on headdress and how they could improve my life such as using it to upload and store my chosen memories, for example. Uh, this is, of course, extremely personal and sacred to me and could be left to my dearest descendants, just as past cultures have done in alternate ways. I would especially love a headdress that could do my hair as I sleep. I would definitely sign up for that as well. And what a beautiful parallel you have drawn out about how we are as humans. Whether in the past or even currently, we are always looking for ways to make objects that will make our lives easier and work better. 
thinking about African collections in the future, what do you think Afrofuturism can bring to work on African collections held in European museums? As with my experience, Afrofuturism can engage with the objects as a source of inspiration. During my research process, I quickly realized that I was getting incorrect, incomplete, misunderstood, biased, and even racist information that was coming from the colonial context. It's difficult to honor the people who created these objects and speak truth to their intent because of this. Rather than try to explain, I decided to be inspired. Some truths will forever remain locked in history, but we certainly have the chance to forge a different narrative in the future. There are so many community researchers who can relate to this, I think. Having to navigate colonial legacies in museum databases. You've left them and us with a really positive way to turn this challenge on its head. Thank you so much for inspiring me with your thoughts about the way design principles can tell us a lot about the cultures that they come from. And it's also been really good to hear about your approach to drawing inspiration from the collections that you can take into your work to create exciting visions for the future. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Afro History Scapes. With me, JC Niala, Tom Fearon, and Yvette Waweru. And this is our final episode. We want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate all the comments and feedback that you've sent through. If you've enjoyed the series, we would be very grateful if you would leave us a good review on iTunes. And I would also like to extend thanks to all of the organizations that made this podcast possible through the joint BME Events and Activities Scheme, administered by the Social History Society in partnership with Economic History Society, History UK, History of Education Society UK, History Workshop Journal, Royal Historical Society, Society for the Study of Labour History, and the Women's History Network. And last but definitely not least, thanks to all of our community action researchers, curators, and digital team at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. We started the series with looking at trade on the Swahili coast, moved on to religions across the continent, and ended with technology. And not forgetting our special episode where community researcher Sherry Davis interviewed Jimbi Katana about his incredible legacy of archaeological work on the Kenyan coast. So thank you to you all. It's been a pleasure to share with you the stories that can be told from working with the objects in the Horniman's collection. But finally, I would like to thank you, JC. This podcast wouldn't be possible without your vision, and it's been a real pleasure to be involved. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's been such a joy to work on it with you. This has been Afro Historyscapes. Always something new, always has been, always on the move. Hey, hey. Hey, hey.